It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Robert Gordon to discuss his book, Can't Be Satisfied, The Life and Times of Muddy Waters. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss the epic life story of perhaps the most iconic American bluesman of all time. From Muddy's beginnings at the Stovall Plantation in the Mississippi Delta, his first recordings for the Library of Congress, his move to Chicago and role in pioneering electric blues, all the way to his influence on the British blues revival and later years as an elder statesman of American music. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined again by Robert Gordon, author of Can't Be Satisfied, The Life and Times of Muddy Waters. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Nate. Excited to talk about Muddy. Cool. Yeah, you wrote this book 16 years ago, so I'll forgive you if you forget a few details, but I've got it in my hand, so uh, I'll quote you if you get something wrong. Good. That sounds great. I've got it in my head, but not as securely as you have in your hand. <laughs> cool. So how did you come to write this book? I mean, it's I think it's gained earned a reputation as the definitive biography of Muddy Waters, one of the key American musical figures. How did you decide that you were the right person to write this book? How did it happen? There's, there's the answer I'd like to give, which is I recognized Muddy as the epitome of blues characters that by telling his single story, I could tell the whole story of the blues, a guy from Mississippi, from the South who goes to the North, who starts on an acoustic and ends up on an electric, who's learning field hollers and then sort of gives birth to rock and roll, you know, all of which is true. But, but, um, and that is what motivated me to write it. But what, how the idea came about was my friend, uh, Peter Garalmick suggested that I was the guy to write the biography of Muddy Waters. And I said, Pete, that's a great idea. Cool. And I, and, and I thank, thank you, Pete Gronick, because I, you definitely yeah. were the right man for the job. It needed to be done. It's a great book. I want to start right, right off in the introduction where you, uh, you start the story essentially with the moment at which Muddy Waters first recorded in August of 1941. Uh, two mm-hmm. men came to him, uh, a white man named Alan Lomax and then a professor, uh, Named uh, John Work the Third, I think. Now I'm getting right. Name. That's correct. Yep. yep. And so, uh, you know, why did you start with that that moment in time? That's the first. I mean, I can jump in with a speculation that that's the moment <laughs> at which Muddy Waters encounters the historical record. His music is first recorded. But why do you start? What there? it really, what it really is, is that's when Muddy hears himself. The 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 thing that was most unique about the encounter with Alan Lomax wasn't just that that was the first time Muddy was recorded, but that Alan could play it back. Lomax could play it back on, on, on the, the recording device. It had a playback. So he could, Muddy could hear himself. So he went from being a guy who played around on the farm to cutting a record and immediately hearing it back and being able to hear that he sounded like other artists. You know, so that's really where the fire is, is, you know, goes into full flame. Muddy hears himself and says, man, I can sing. And boom, he's, you know, then he's got a brand new commitment to it. It's more than just an avocation. It's a, you know, passion that he's going to build a life around. Yeah. And, and that's, it's interesting to me. I think, um, I can't remember who the singer was, but but there's a sense of discovery when you discover your own voice and that you can do these amazing things. And so uh, it's it's absolutely key that this is the moment that Muddy realizes about himself. Do you think if Lomax and Work had not come along to the Stovall Plantation in Mississippi, that Muddy would have made that, that leap himself? You know, that is a great question. And the answer is, of course, purely speculative, but I'm going to say no. And I'm, and the reason I'm going to say that that Muddy would not have found his way is that even after Lomax records him and, and sends him a copy of the disc, 
Muddy, the first time Muddy leaves the farm, he goes to St. Louis and, and, uh, and he tries to make it there. And St. Louis was like halfway to Chicago and a, a famous stopping off point for lots of the musicians. And Muddy can't make it in St. Louis. You know, he goes back to Chicago. He goes back to uh, Mississippi, to Stovall Plantation. And, um, and it takes a second attempt. And I don't know that he would have had the gumption to try that uh, if he didn't know that he could, you know, that he had a record. He could walk in and say, this is me. So I think he needed that, that push from uh, Lomax and John Wark. Cool. And let's go back a little bit and talk about Muddy's roots in the Delta and where he came from. And it's in, in a lot of ways, it's similar to the story of other Delta musicians, Sunhouse, Charlie Patton, Robert Johnson, Skip James, etc. I mean, Muddy's uh, the child, almost an orphan child. His mother dies when he's very young. He's raised by his grandparents. Tell, tell the listener a little bit about your understanding of what it was like to grow up on a plantation like that. Well, um, Muddy was born in about the middle Delta area, uh, just outside a small town that uh, is called Rolling Fork. I spent a lot of time with Muddy's brother, Robert Morganfield, half-brother, and uh, Robert took me out to Jug's Corner, where, which is sort of like a bend in the road is all it is, where, which is where Muddy was born. And, you, you know, it's just to... to to be talking about a place outside of Rolling Fork, it, you just, you know, there's not a lot of space inside Rolling Fork. So to get outside, you know, there's, Muddy wasn't accustomed to cities. So when he moves up with his grandmother, like you said, his father wasn't around. His mom dies. His mom's mom, Della Grant, uh, raises Muddy up and they move from Rolling Fork to Stovall. Stovall is outside of Clarksdale. Clarksdale, when 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 trains come into the Delta, Clarksdale becomes a big city, you know, a relatively big city um, because the trains intersect there. So Stovall is a prominent plantation uh, with a reputation for being more fair and honest than others. That doesn't mean they're completely fair or completely honest, but it means that they're not the rapscallions that a lot of the plantations were. So Muddy was ambitious and always looking to make an extra buck. Uh, he, was, he, he had a real entrepreneurial spirit. Even as a kid, he saved up and bought a car and used the car to give people rides. You know, he was like, he was an early version of Uber. You could, he would give you a ride into town and you'd pay him and, you know, he, he was doing, always doing odd jobs, uh, had a moonshine racket, had, uh, he would trap furs, doing all these little things to get himself ahead. And playing in a band was one of those, you know, just one more of his sidelines. And you talk about the, the, I think, probably a pivotal moment in Muddy's life when he, when he first sees and hears Sun House play and play with the bottleneck style that became Muddy's yeah. trademark. Tell us about yeah. that meeting. Well, you know, you have to understand Muddy's born in either 1913 or 1915. I believe it's 1913. And the first uh, sounds that are recorded as something like blues is a keening slide guitar heard in 1903. So this, this whole style that we call blues is really um, in its infancy as Muddy's coming up. And, and there are some people older than him who are more, you know, who are highly skilled. Muddy has a great voice and he's learning to play guitar. And at one point on the plantation, uh, they keep a juke house on the plantation and, and Sun House is booked to play there. And I remember I found an interview where Muddy says uh, his, lies, his eyes lit up like a Christmas tree when he saw Sunhouse playing the way he played. And I think that, I'm going to guess up till that point, Muddy had never really seen slide guitar. He'd, he'd heard it, you know, because the uh, Robert Johnson recordings were coming out. You know, there, uh, you mentioned Charlie Patton, great slide guitarist. So the, 
the sound was in his head, but he'd never seen it. And Sunhouse shows him how to do it and that it can be done by mere mortals. And I think Muddy's hooked, hooked forever. And also he's a, a hardcore Sunhouse fan, you know, thereafter. And one more quick note, when uh, Peter Guralnik met Muddy uh, one time, the first time up in Boston, um, Peter says something like, uh, are you familiar with this blues singer named Robert Johnson? And Muddy's reply is, my main man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's I love classic. That. And, uh, and I think that it's also an important distinction. You, you know, you talk about Sunhouse is the first one he sees, but he's hearing blues before this. I mean, you, you talk about he's influenced by Leroy Carr purely by record. Right. Leroy Carr, Leroy yeah, exactly. Carr was, so exactly. tell us a little bit about where Muddy was hearing music besides just people, itinerant musicians passing through the plantation. Well, that's it. You have, you, you know, the, after you read my book, the other great blues book to read is called The World Don't Owe Me Nothing. And it's the uh, Honey Boy Edwards autobiography. And I just love, you get the real sense there of what it's like traveling around. He's Muddy's age, um, but he's living the lifestyle of like Robert Johnson would have, you know, 10 and 20 years prior to him. Uh, there, there's a circuit, you know, you can be a, basically the blues musicians are the people who look at the uh, other people picking cotton out in the fields and say, I don't want to do that. You know, I got to do something else. And, and that immediately puts them in the eyesight of the cops because the cops uh, are looking to, keep uh you know they're going to arrest any um working age black male who's not who you know during the daylight hours who's not in a field so um people like muddy and honey boy edwards and robert johnson actually not so much muddy because muddy worked days and he worked nights but uh but Muddy would hear these itinerant guys like Honey Boy Edwards coming through who were avoiding work, who were avoiding day work and doing night work in the juke joints. Um, and, and also at this point, you know, you've got the beginnings of, of the jukeboxes and Seabergs. The, uh, you know, you could put a nickel in and get and hear music come out of the machine at the, at the commissary, at the, at the Stovall commissary, where you'd get paid, you could immediately begin to spend your nickels, you know. And so Muddy was getting an education in styles through the records, which is a really interesting moment because prior to those records, if you played, a, you know, um, Glory Hallelujah a particular way, it was like, oh, people know he, he's from Rosedale or he's from Stovall. That's the way they play that song at that place. It was like an accent. And with the release of records and jukeboxes now, then things weren't so, you know, locale based. Um, Muddy could never, Muddy might never have encountered Leroy Carr or Scrapper Blackwell or those guys, but he could pick up their styles without encountering them. Cool. And so shortly, I mean, not shortly thereafter, but in 41, Lomax and Work discover Muddy. How did they come to find Muddy Waters? Well, now that's a really inter interesting story. And in brief, this guy, John Work, was an African-American folklorist at Fisk, a, a black college uh, in Nashville. And he wanted to document there had been a horrible fire at a club in Natchez, Mississippi, where close to 200 patrons had been killed. Um, and Work's idea was, let's go back to Natchez a year after the fire and hear how the tragedy has been incorporated into song. I mean, what a brilliant idea. Um, but, he, but he's got no money and Fisk has no money. And so he reaches out to the Library of Congress and Alan Lomax, which results in like two years of correspondence and the idea changing 
from Natchez to the Delta and this sort of just general song search as opposed to a, you know, seeking the songs about a specific subject. And, and I found so much information about that, by the way, that I've published a separate book that's kind of a sidebar to the Muddy Waters book. It's called Lost Delta Found, and it includes a lot of correspondence and documentation of that Delta expedition that involved Fisk and the Library of Congress with papers by John Wark and these two other um, grown African-American men. Uh, one was a professor and one was a student who were sources for Lomax, but their, but their manuscripts had been lost and never come out. And I found them in my work and put them out. Yeah, and I think your work has very been very important in elevating work's reputation and maybe dinging Lomax's a little bit because they didn't get along especially well. And Lomax, for a long time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, it was Alan Lomax discovered Muddy Waters, period, basically. Yeah, that's what it, when I began the book, that's what it was for me. It's funny, I've been, I've been chastised for pretending I didn't know about John Work when it, when it began, but, you know, I didn't know about John Work, and hardly anyone did. And and after my book, a lot of people did. And they, you know, that's that's been a confusion. But uh, but yeah, Work Work really was a uh, had had a real appreciation for African American vernacular. You know, he was a trained classical composer, but he had this great appreciation for the everyday sounds, and he uh, put them, you know, on a high pedestal. Cool. And let's talk a little bit about the, the work they actually captured. I mean, you know, they put out the album in 1943. It's been a, a signpost of folk blues ever since. Um, well, now, all that comes out is uh, 278. You know, I think it's 278. Yeah. My bad, my bad. The album is a collection you know it's an actual album it's like 578 uh discs with five different artists i think or maybe you know yeah five different artists and two songs by each on on each uh on each platter so um it, it muddy stuff creates a stir because it's got such a great sound to it um but the whole collection, what we know now as the plantation recordings, that didn't come out until, you know, I think the first time it started coming out was in the 60s. I see. I see. And I wanted to uh, quote you on something you said, comparing Muddy's first performance to uh, his slight, slightly older peer, Robert Johnson. Unlike the emotional desperation of Robert Johnson, Muddy conveys power, the physicality of a human being worked by the system. In the voice of Robert Johnson, we hear the man who played hooky from field work. In Muddy's voice, we hear, we feel the field, the plow, the dirt. And you referenced that earlier, but I wanted to emphasize that. Like, talk a little bit more about Muddy's physicality and and his status as a working man and how that impacted his music. Um, he was a working guy, you know. I mean, uh, exactly like we talked about the way that Honey Boy Edwards or Robert Johnson uh, could avoid the fields and, you know, kind of uh, take days off and work nights. Muddy was working days and nights. Like I said, trap it, you know, he had all these sidelines. He just had this, in a way, kind of like B.B. King, you know, they, some people have a real drive and a real entrepreneurial spirit and it's going to come out in whatever they do. So Muddy was just, uh, you know, he was a big man uh, and real charismatic. And, and I think he was the kind of guy when he walks in a room, people turn, you know, they, they just sort of notice him because he casts that big a shadow or conveys that big a presence. And that's unlike someone like Robert Johnson. People might have turned when he came in the room but it was for different reasons. And what you get in Robert is, um, you know, maybe a little more playfulness in a way. And also 
I think uh, with Robert Johnson in particular, you do get more a little more desperation. But with Muddy, you get, uh, you know, it's just like, sort of like he's playing with construction tools. You, 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 you feel the physicality in a way that you don't in the other ones. Cool. And what his is voice his... too. Also his voice, just that declamatory way he can, you know, drive something home through vocal prowess. Sheer power. Yeah. One thing I found really fascinating about this book was these early letters that Muddy dictated uh, mm. to, to Alan Lomax. And, and the first one dated September 2nd, 1941, Stovall, Mississippi. Alan Lomard, he gets the guy's name wrong. Dear, I guess he says, dear CO, I assume that means Colonel. Um, this is the boy that put out Burr Cover Blues and Number One Highway Blues and several more blues. Want to know, did they take? Please, sir, if they did, please send some to Clarksdale. Miss Posey, he misspells Mississippi. Sir, answer yeah. soon to MC Morganfield. Like, break down that letter a little bit. I mean, it's just fascinating to me, especially, I mean, he refers to himself as boy. I mean, explain a yeah. little bit about the etiquette that let black folks were for, forced to live under when they interacted with white people in that, in that place and time. Well, it's the classic, you know, know your place. Um, muddy. I would have, I, w I would state, you know, almost assuredly that muddy had seen people killed for no reason. Friends of his probably mistreated and or killed um, just because they, they got on the wrong side of someone one day someone was in a bad mood, so, someone white was in a bad mood, and someone black was dead. And so Muddy is going to, you know, it's a sense of survival to keep that place. He doesn't know Alan Lomax from anyone else, so he knows to white men he's a boy. He may be in his 30s, he may have children of his own, he may have debts and responsibilities but he's a boy so uh and it's painful those letters are really painful um because it's a different kind of desperation there you know you hear muddy looking for news this guy came through with all these promises and he knows the promises were fulfilled because he got to hear himself that day so this guy went and took muddy's record and left Mississippi with it, you know, did it take, were you able to, you know, do anything with it? Um, Muddy's sort of wondering, are people, are, is there some place in the world now where people are listening to him in the same way that he can sit in the Stovall Duke house and listen to, you know, Leroy Carr? Um, and and uh, and that whole letter is, as you indicated, Muddy couldn't write. So there's there's someone on the farm who knew enough about writing to be the one they would go to. My guess would be that was the guy's side job, just the way Muddy's side job was giving people rides. This guy was like, here, you know, tell me what you need to say. I'll write it. Muddy can't check it. Hey, that's not how you spell Mississippi. You know, they're just getting it down as close as they can and sending it off. So what Muddy's asking for there is copies of his record and implying, and it'll become more explicit in, as the uh, correspondence continues, um, Muddy's implying, you know, if you made the, uh, those records, you promised you were going to send me 20 bucks. Where's my money? Yeah, and the and the the correspondence devolves into Muddy asking for his money, Lomax promising it, never delivering it, and uh, and apparently never did. No, I think he did. I do. He I did. think he did. Okay. I do think he did. But I think it took you know, I think it took months and months and months. I've, I've forgot. I, I've forgotten how long. I once sort of you know, it's never explicit, but I think I found reference enough to make me feel like that money did come through. But it took a long damn time. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, go ahead. We we can't know whether it took a long time because Lomax was being irresponsible or because it was a you know bureaucratic mess. I strongly suspect that 
if uh, Lomax had wanted checks to go through quickly, they would have gone through quickly. Yeah, and although he does reference a government form that he needs Muddy to sign in there at some point. But yeah, so sort of the next step for Muddy is then um, he, he gets to play a little bit on the radio at KFFA, a tiny place, but its impact was enormous. Tell us about KFFA. Um, that is the home of the King Biscuit uh, Blue Show. That's the where Sonny Boy... Williamson gets uh, a flower company to back him, and he goes on at noon every day. So when the people in the field are taking a break to eat their lunch, there's a 15-minute program called uh, the King Biscuit Blues Show, and Sonny Boy Williamson plays their music to them. He plays, you know, African-American blues to people who are on their lunch break from doing that kind of work. And, you know, we, we almost can't understand it today, what it would mean to have yourself um, validated by, you know, some cultural uh, representation, because in our world today, most everybody's got some kind of representation, right? But in that world of segregation, the black people were kept down, you know, there, an important point is that, you know, there were not records kept, not, not, I'm not talking about songs. I mean, black people were considered not important enough to keep records on birth, death, marriage, all that stuff. So now you've got a guy, a black guy on the radio, sounding like a black guy, you know, Sonny boy sounding like himself and playing local music it it just affirms for all these field hands that their lives have value that's what i take from yeah. that that's why kffa is so important and then it and and you've got a quote from muddy about the time he played on it and he says if we got a chance to set in and do a couple of songs man when we got back on stovall that was the whole talk everybody that yeah. heard it on the radio was running telling all the people on the plantation i hear them man i hear them they on it yeah <laughs> yeah so exciting isn't it man i mean you can you can hear his excitement in that for sure and, and i think that in our era it's hard to grasp also not just the segregation but also the difference between you know now we're in sort of a narrow casting era where everybody's putting stuff out it's very hard to get mass attention this was the beginning of the broadcast era when something mm -hmm. like a radio signal got almost everybody's attention and you know there weren't many yeah. radio stations and so it was easy to make a big impact but let's hurry along and try to get him uh to chicago um okay so like you said he 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 tried to go to st louis failed and comes back but then he then he takes one more shot and this time he goes straight to chicago and this was a big leap for somebody like muddy who's coming from the delta oh yeah oh yeah and he's got you know he's got like I mean, these the, uh, people from Mississippi are doing it all the time. They arrive with one name on a piece of paper, you know, and and and. Uh, but he finds his way to uh, to Joe, uh, who is a cousin of his, through his grandmother Della Grant, and in relatively short amount of time, he's got a factory job. And and what's unusual about a factory job is that. It has a set beginning and end time. Muddy's accustomed to working from sun to, to sun, you know, be up before the sun is up so that he can be in the field when the sun's coming up and stay in the field and work all day until the sun's down. Now, and then you don't get paid but once a year. And, you know, I mean, like farm life, abuse on a plantation, or just the whole, the way it's set up uh, is bordering on the inhumane. And, and Muddy's arriving in Chicago and finding, wow, you know, I go in at nine, I'm out at five, I get a lunch break, you know, whatever. There's set hours, pay comes every week. It's something he can depend on. And he very quickly uh, begins to meet other musicians. The, the important thing about Chicago is that Chicago is becoming little Mississippi, that so many people begin migrating to the better jobs there beginning early in the 20th century that by the time Muddy goes there, there may be whole neighborhoods where 
people say, oh, yeah, we're from, you know, this is the Friars Point neighborhood. People from, you know, uh, Midnight, Mississippi, they live over in that neighborhood. Everyone, there's such a new population in Chicago. And, and what makes Muddy get popular there, if I can jump ahead, is um, he figures out how to stay true to the acoustic Mississippi sound, but get loud enough to be heard over the, the din of the Chicago street, you know, uh, street cars clanging and, and much heavier traffic than they're accustomed to in Mississippi. Uh, Muddy... Through, you know, he uses a what's called a dearmed pickup. He uh, electrifies his acoustic and eventually gets an electric guitar. And, and amazingly, his first successful recording in Chicago is the same song that he's recorded for Alan Lomax, Can't Be Satisfied. And I love the version because it's so true to the Delta and yet so totally new with this electrical uh, excitement in it. And it spreads in Chicago like wildfire because you have this whole population that feels that same way. Hey, this reminds me of home, but it's not old and slow like I remember home. It's electric and exciting like the world here is. And it, it sort of gave a new voice to that whole, uh, that, that whole population in Chicago. Yeah, and it took him a little while, though, to get to that point. Like, that's a record yeah. that came out on Chess, but he recorded for Bluebird, which was the dominant Chicago label at the time. He recorded yeah. for Columbia, and then he recorded some failed sessions for Chess. So it took him a little while to find his footing. But I also want to talk about his band. Some of the key people, I mean, he meets this guy, Jimmy Rogers, uh, right. who's a guitar player. Meets the great little Wal- Walter, the harmonica player. Otis Spann, the pianist. Uh, uh, and then tell us a little bit about the band and the chemistry and why it took so long to get that band on record. Well, let's go to the last part there. Why it took so long to get that band on record is because of the recording company, Chess Records. They're run by a guy, by two brothers, Leonard and Phil Chess. Leonard kind of runs the recording studio more. And um, and he is a guy who doesn't like change. You know, it's funny the way so many record uh, executives get all this credit, you know, when in fact they're the ones trying to hold the musicians back. So uh, Leonard is having some mild success with some uh with 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 sounds like he's the one who puts out muddy's first successful record and it does really well when when he puts out uh can't be satisfied it's just muddy and i think a bass so there's not it's not a full band and it's a big success because it's captured this new feeling so in leonard's opinion all all the records he should he puts out should sound like that you know he doesn't want he doesn't want uh to experiment he just wants to collect the bucks and and the reason the band has such a it's like each piece gets added slowly slowly through muddy's wearing down leonard and he, he keeps insisting because this band is so hot in the chicago clubs but they can't get on record because of Leonard's uh, um, resistance to change. And you've got some description of Leonard Chess that I think is just priceless. I wanted to quote it a little bit. It's, it, it, it says, you says, psychology has as much to do with record producing as does musical knowledge. If artists are trying too hard and have lost their natural feel, the producer deflects their attention, unleashing their innate artistry. A producer will set an artist on edge if that discomfort will cre- create great art. And then it says, Leonard was known as a particularly aggressive shrink. And it quotes Jimmy Rogers <laughs> saying, Leonard be calling people a motherfucker. That was just his way of saying good morning to blues musicians. At chess, <laughs> if you didn't curse, you wasn't recognized. And, uh, and and then you say Muddy was immediately comfortable with that. Colonel Stovall had been the same way. And I think there's 
you really draw out the parallels between the Stovalls on the plantation and the Chess Brothers and the record company. And Muddy adopted a similar uh, attitude towards he felt he was Leonard's boy in a way. I mean, he had a paternal mm-hmm. relationship with the Chess Brothers. I think so. Um, and and exactly the point it, that, you know, while all those characteristics of the relationship were there and those parallels were there, it was really Muddy who who brought them, you know, who, who made them so similar because that was the, that was the way he knew, you know, he knew he was friendly with Colonel Stovall and kind of his favorite guy in a way, and would entertain the Colonel at the house, at, at the house and everything. Um, and consequently could get favors from the Colonel. And so that was kind of the way Muddy was with Leonard. That was the way he knew that things could work. And, um, you know, if it was good and bad for Muddy and Leonard, in a way, uh, it held Muddy back, this subservience, this sort of uh, inherent subservience he'd come up with. But at the same time, Muddy had this drive where he would, he he could coax Leonard along. And, And he was right. You know, that was the other thing is that the more Leonard listened to Muddy, the more right Muddy was. Every time he added a band remember those records got bigger and bigger until you get to the early middle fifties and Muddy's in his prime, you know, and Manish boy. And it's just all this, um, it's basically rock and roll, uh, as we know it, you know, in it's very earliest phases. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the, the chemistry of the band though. I mean, I think Jimmy Rogers is somebody who does not get enough credit for True. Muddy's music. And you really bring home the way that, you know, if if Muddy was sort of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards rolled up into one, I mean, Jimmy Rogers is the Brian Jones of this combination <laughs> that, that that puts it together, that that brings out the Muddy, that backs him up, that voices him. What why do you think Jimmy Rogers has been overlooked sort of historically? Oh man, it's the sideband's lament, right? I mean, Jimmy did have some of, some of his own hits, but uh, he was. You know, he was sort of the guitarist in Muddy's band. That's that's who he was. So it was hard for him to become another Muddy. And he wasn't. He, you know, his vocal style wasn't as powerful. Um, his guitar, his guitar playing was very deft. You know, great, great style and played really well accompanying Muddy. And 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 and. All those guys, they had a great band sensibility. You know, they all were working together basically to keep Muddy's voice as this powerful centerpiece. But um, Jimmy Rogers on his own, I don't think, you know, he, he didn't really have the disposition either. I'm, I met him uh, and, you know, spent a great evening at his house talking to him about Muddy. And Jimmy... Uh, you know, he just didn't have that leadership thing that Muddy had. The charisma, I guess it was. Yeah, but there was one member of the band that did get a lot of attention and actually spun out pretty quickly, and that's the great little Walter. Uh, yeah. if, if there was a virtuoso in the band, it was little Walter, who wasn't just it wasn't just his playing. He also invented a new sound, the way he used amplifiers with his harmonica. Exactly. The, the technology was waiting for the artists to come discover it and Walter this who was this kind of brash uh kid you know he didn't it almost like didn't know any better he just he knew he was great and and god damn it that's what he was going to be and and he, no one could hold him back and he was so he was there to push the to test the limits of the technology and create new sounds and bend those notes and create all that i mean it's just uh, you know, you the you you hear what he's doing, and you realize that there's no one before that who was doing that. The 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 amplifier wasn't there to be done with that way. So uh, little Walter's in, inventing it, and you know he pays the price. He he gets um, you know his life does not go so well. 
how old is he when he dies? He's like, I think in his forties, early forties. Uh, yeah, he, um, he he made it past the twenty seven club, but he did not make fifty. Yeah, 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 and went out sad. I mean, he broke he breaks away from Muddy's band with a big hit that was recorded by Dude, Muddy's yeah. band, instrumental, and then you know from then on you can't stop Little Walter from going out and doing being Little Walter, but it, it in the end it didn't really do him any favors. Exactly, exactly. So Muddy had that you know. It, it makes you begin to appreciate all of the characteristics that have to be right for the star to be, you know, a successful star. Um, you know, if, if, if you could have taken, uh, Jimmy Rogers and little Walter and their molecules in a, in a, uh, martini shaker and shaken, not stirred, poured them out, you know, and, yeah, you might have gotten two more superstars, but the balance between Jimmy and, uh, and you know, the, it, it, Jimmy didn't have the right balance on his own, and Walter didn't have the right balance on his own, but Muddy did. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Muddy's biggest rival, but before we do that, there's, there's something else you draw out about Muddy's psychology and his art, uh, and, and it's, it's sex. It's lyrically. Most of Muddy's songs are about sex. Sex with someone else's wife, sex with someone else's girlfriend, <laughs> sex and trouble, but it was always a trouble he survived, a scrape he escaped. Sex was sex, but also became an analogy for a kind of freedom, a freedom to serve himself, to damn the torpedoes, the ship supervisor, and the overseer's big gun. And I want to get one more quote in from a few pages later. When you're talking about the song, Still a Fool, a pay on to the side woman, uh, uh, a song is important for what it suggests is what it says. And you said, the guitar's burning distortion evokes an over-the-top madness, an uncontrollable desire beyond all reason of fucking a woman between rows of cotton, then stepping one row over and having her sister. I mean, you know, wow. <laughs> Explain that a little bit. And, and, and how that added, you know, the, the sex aspect of, of the Muddy Waters package and, and his life, because he, he, unlike his big rival, Hallow Wolf, he wasn't a one-woman man, never could be. Right. No. Um, I learned a lot about Muddy's uh, home life from his granddaughter, Cookie, who he raised as his daughter. And she, and she helped me appreciate what Muddy's, what Muddy's behavior was like for Geneva, his wife. So, um, and, and, and Muddy in some interviews made it real clear that, you know, he saw women as, you know, objects, sex objects. And I, I think I remember Muddy talking about the, you know, the cotton field woman there was a name he used uh you know cotton patch girl or something where he kind of describes that 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 abusive use of women uh and you know what caused that where did that come from in muddy's life gee i don't you know you gotta i'd have to take a couple psychology classes before i could answer that but but I remember another of his bandmates telling me in later life that Muddy, I think Muddy's girlfriend caught him cheating. So we're not talking about Muddy's wife. We're talking about the woman Muddy was cheating with caught him cheating on her. And, <laughs> and, and the band always laughed because Muddy turned around and goes, now, wait a minute, who are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? <laughs> that's a classic and i think i've heard it attributed to willie nelson as well uh uh probably a lot of musicians have done that but yeah. let's talk talk about muddy's big rival uh you know muddy, muddy gets yeah Helen wolf muddy gets to gets his band together the headhunters they're the baddest thing going in chicago and then all of a sudden chester burnett moves to town what did how did that impact muddy and how did muddy take to it it's a really interesting relationship because I think Muddy is inherently a nice guy. Um, and, and, uh, 
he when Wolf comes up, they already know about each other because uh, Wolf's record that he made in Memphis with Sam Phillips gets put out by Chess and becomes, you know, Wolf becomes a Chess recording artist just like Muddy. So when Wolf moves to town, mo- moves up to Chicago, proudly driving his own station wagon, um, he lives with Muddy for the first few first short time period few months i think and um i think muddy puts up wolf for two reasons one wolf is friends with leonard chess and so muddy's going to go out of his way to help leonard and two i think muddy's got a you know generally big heart and willing to put up wolf he's going to charge him rent you know he's not putting him up for free but he's got a little rooming house in his basement where several other musicians live like I said, he's an entrepreneur and always looking to make a, a buck on the side. Um, but I think Wolf brings this competitive streak that really winds up defining their relationship. Wolf is the one who is coming to Chicago determined to dethrone Muddy and to, you know, he, he sees Muddy as, as an entity to topple. So uh they are you know duking it out in the clubs honestly and it's uh it's 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 a rivalry over who's going to draw the bigger crowds who's going to because whoever draws the bigger crowds will have more money can get a bigger car can have their band in nicer clothes um and it's just all about that it's it is a classic rivalry later paul osher who's the harmonica player with Muddy in the 60s, uh, sees Muddy and Wolf sitting together at the Ann Arbor Blues Festival. I mean, now you're in like the 70s, early 70s, late 60s. So you've got a rivalry that's been going on, you know, getting on to two decades almost. And um, and those two guys are sitting there burning, burning cash money. Who will stop, you know, who will stop first? Who's going to be the tougher one and keep burning money? Uh, you know, just to like, it's just, it's a contest that won't end. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of like a sort of John Lennon and Paul McCartney relationship, just they weren't in the same band. They, they <laughs> constantly one up like one another. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think we're all beneficiaries of that kind of iron sharpens iron rivalry. Um, yes. And then a couple other things I want to get to before we wrap up. It, it, you know, towards his later years, Muddy was obviously, like you said, he was big on the R&B charts. He wasn't necessarily a king on the Chitlin circuit, uh, you know, the way that some of the R&B artists, like somebody like uh, Roy Brown might have been. But he was big on, on record, played the club circuits. But then he starts getting popular with white people, first in the U.K., and then in the U.S., tell us about that experience for Muddy. And 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 I mean, was it disorienting for him, or did he adapt? What happened there? Okay, so the, the there's a really funny story about Muddy going to the U.K. Um, gosh, I'm not going to be able to pull the years out of my head. Late '50s, uh, he's brought over to the U.K. I think it's '57 or '58. Um, the Chris Barber jazz band brings him over. Uh, the records they're getting in the UK are several years behind. You know, they're just not able to keep up. So they're still into acoustic blues in the UK. And Muddy comes over with Span and an electric guitar. And I forget the headline. You might, you might, I think it's, uh, you know, screaming and crying blues. It's screaming like guitar that. and howling piano. Is, screaming is, guitar and howling piano. You know, and 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 if you're sensing in there a uh, repulsion, I think it's accurate. The the Brits were like, "Oh my gosh, oh that's right," because uh, Big Bill Bloomsy had been over there the year before, confirming for the English listeners that you know blues was still this acoustic kind of thing, um, whereas Muddy brings them the the real sounds of the South Side, which turns out to be you know extremely exciting and if we're to believe all the first-hand accounts that's where you know keith richards and i don't know every famous 
you know, 60s rock and roll guitarist is at that 1958 concert and leaves wanting to buy an electric guitar. But the confusion is that at the time in the press, they're, they, they really put money down. Oh, that's not blues. You shouldn't be doing that. So when he comes back in 19, I don't recall, 60, I think, 61, maybe. Yeah, the first time, time is 58, and the second one is 61. So when he comes back, he's like, oh, well, I, you know, I know what those English people like. They don't want me to bring my electric guitar. So he brings his acoustic, and, and the people go, acoustic guitar? You turned us on to the electric. You're supposed to be bringing your electric guitar. So it takes a few times for Muddy to get it right uh, in, in, in England. And in the U S you know, there's a weird thing that happens in the U S that in history we've kind of forgotten, but, um, rock and roll basically dies in the early 1960s and is followed by the kind of coffee house theme, the, the folk circuit. And so that whole middle period of the sixties, uh, is, a, a kind of weaker time for rock and roll. And then it comes back strong Dylan and 65 and the British invasion thereafter, you know, it, it gets real rocking and dirty again. Um, and, and muddy, he just kind of, he follows the, he follows the, the trends there. Uh, he plays at the Newport folk festival and he's just right on time. He's got a, a blues band that's really tight with Otis Spann on piano and um, James Cotton's on harmonica. They're, they're playing, you know, their sound is real authentic and also very contemporary and current. Uh, they connect with the audiences and make, help make blues real popular again. But then, uh, and then, and then Muddy cuts an acoustic blues LP in like 62 i forget what it's called but it's you know it's an acknowledgement of the coffee house scene and then after that by the end of the decade he's going to be back cutting some of his best electric records again yeah i think uh, you're referring to the real folk blues yes real folk yeah. blues yeah yeah and then and then uh you know then the, the whole rolling stones thing happens and there's the blues boom in the late sixties. And meanwhile, Marshall chess, the son of Leonard, I believe yeah. uh, takes yeah. over uh, the, the, the production company and makes some famously misguided records with, um, with muddy. Like, tell us about the London sessions. Uh, let's see. The London sessions is actually a series that they're doing at chess where they're bringing their, their Chicago stars, over to London to play with musicians who, uh, you know, with the uh, stars of the English, of the British invasion. So, um, Muddy's London Session, you got to give me, when I think of the, this period of records, I think, of course, of Electric Mud, which is... Yeah, Electric Mud uh, is the most notorious one. Yeah. Well, Electric Mud is one of those records that depends on how you look at it as to what you get out of it. Like I initially always heard it as a psychedelic mess, you know, just a, I, I couldn't really get into it at all because it seemed like such a, it seemed so inauthentic. Muddy's, Muddy's playing, Muddy's trying to do his blues thing while these young cats are doing this way outre psychedelic wah-wah kind of stuff. And, and, but then I began to, when I was making the Muddy Waters documentary and Chuck D spoke so highly, you know, from the rap group, uh, hip hop group, Public Enemy, uh, Chuck D spoke so highly of Electric Mud. I really went back to it with a new attitude and could hear um, the achievement in it, you know? And Marshall Chess always claimed that that record was doing great until it got, a negative review in Rolling Stone, which killed it. Now, I don't, I can't imagine that Electric Mud was going to find a massive audience at the time of its release. Um, you know, I think it was destined to be what it was, but it's, it's an interesting possibility to, to think of 
you know, <laughs> if if these because there was also a Helen Wolf psychedelic album, and if these like blues psychedelic albums had taken off, and what if you know what kind of subgenre we'd have now? Yeah, yeah, it sort of makes me think of Miles's Miles Davis's on the corner album, which is something that an album that. I think it was too far out for jazz, even jazz fusion yeah. fans at the time. But later on, hip hop heads really embraced the album. And so, yeah, I was aware of Chuck D giving it um, the propers. But then, so, you know, the last few years, it's not all glory and, and, and big tours. I mean, Muddy's sort of enjoys a role like what, a decade and a half as a, as a, elder statesman with the respect of not just white rock stars like Johnny Winter and Keith Richards, but also black stars like Stevie Wonder and others, you know, given him his propers, but you know, he's, he's got publishing fight family. Um, he's got to sue Led Zeppelin or does that happen after he dies? No, no, no. That's all going on in yeah. his lifetime. Um, yeah, he's got songs. I mean, some of that stuff he's kind of, uh, on the outskirts of because it like uh, the Led Zeppelin suit is for the song. Um, it's a muddy. It's a Willie Dixon song, uh, um, and so muddy. It's a whole lot of loving, isn't it? Whole lot of loving, but but you know the suit is between Willie Dixon, author of the song, and ah, the, yes, yes, and yes. Led Zeppelin. Um, but Muddy's involved in some of that stuff, and he is—he does get his propers. Uh, everybody is, um, you know, gives him tribute. When when Johnny Winter begins to produce Muddy in '78, and they put out the Hard Again record, that's the comeback. It's the first time Muddy's away from chess since the middle '50s, um, and it's the first time Muddy gets to sort of do his natural sound again in a long time. The, the chesses were not only putting him through like psychedelic experimentation, but there's one called Muddy Brass and Blues, which has a lot of very kind of Vegasy horn arrangements on it. And yeah, that folk blues record, which is pretty good with Buddy Guy. But, you know, Muddy's, they're, they're trying to make Muddy fit the trends instead of letting Muddy be himself and, and, and let the trends come to Muddy. Uh, and there's like three or four records at the end of Muddy's life that where he gets his uh, groove back and Johnny Winter's a key player in those. And at that point in time, Muddy's touring a fair bit. He's got Robert, you know, he's got, he's got problems going on with his band because his band is wanting to get um, to be, to get better treatment and Muddy doesn't have the security to give them that. And, and, you know, like one of the sad things to me is about a a year and a half, about the last year of Muddy's touring, he he sacks his whole band, Willie Big Eyes Smith. And um, I forget who is harmonic, uh, Jerry Portnoy. And I mean, this, this classic band that had been laying down great grooves and was really tight for several years on the road, they all get sacked and a new band gets put together because there's a beef between Muddy and Muddy's manager and the band. And it just, it's, you know, it happens to everybody. Uh, it was just a shame to kind of see that in his, in his late years. Yeah, I think it was Hubert Sumlin who played a little bit with with Muddy, but was most famous as, as Helen Wolf's lead guitar player who said, you know, when you played for Helen Wolf, uh, you got your taxes paid and you got accounting. And when you paid for Muddy, played for Muddy, it came in cash and no records were kept. Yeah. And so that was yeah, the difference. Exactly. And, I, and I'm glad you brought up Willie Dixon, the songwriter, because that's the one point I wanted to get to and didn't. So we'll wrap up with that. What's his relationship with Willie Dixon? It was sort of a house songwriter, bass player there at the Chess Studios, but was never really on his road band. How did that dynamic yeah. work out? Um, Dixon was another guy, you know, comes up from Mississippi, about the same age as Muddy. And um, and Dixon, again, he, he's sort of like a, he's a, he's got a good managerial skill. So when he connects with Chess, 
he can start to bring musicians to chess and then he can start to bring songs to chess and that and Dixon has a great knack for songs a lot of them are uh sort of polishing up um traditional songs but a lot of them are his own creations and uh these songs into the chess studio and uh and and see an argument ensue over who's going to get to record it you know hey no uh Muddy's going to say, no, I want it. And Wolf's going to say, I want it. And Walter's going to say, I want it. And Bo Diddley's going to say, I want it. And that's what a great place to be for a song writer. Um, so he was, and he's responsible for some of Muddy's best known songs. Uh, uh, Manish Boy and uh, Cold Out of Lovin' and uh, um, just a lot of the big hits came from Willie Dixon's pen. Cool. And I want to wrap up with, with one observation you make in the introduction. We were kind of telling the story about the cabin, uh, Muddy's boyhood home, and oh, yeah. uh, where, how it still stands, though not in the same place. It used to be on the county road that runs along the edge of Stovall Farms, and it was falling apart. They tore down the additions that had been added because it was a menace. And then the House of Blues buys the thing and takes it yeah. on tour. And, uh, and so the sentence to me, in the course of his life, Muddy Waters became emblematic for so much, not just the blues generally, but also the 20th century migration from a southern rural culture to a northern urban one. The evolution from acoustic music to electric music, the acceptance of African-American culture into American society, and now his cabin assumed its own meaning, the commodification of the blues. So it's uh, <laughs> just a classic sort of moment. I don't know. Do you have a comment on that? Anything to add to, to that beautiful sentence? I think that's the great thing about writing, you know, you get the you you can you get to put it down once and then you get to polish it and polish it and polish it. So I I I feel like whenever you're quoting me, you're you're saying the thing I would get to if we if we talked on the phone for, you know, 10 hours, I would get it down to all these nice pithy things, but uh no, I think the the you know, the sentence says it. It is because the commodification, it's commercialization, you know, and, and that's not a terrible thing. It's not always a great thing, um, but it, it, it is what, I mean, that, that, that is kind of what Muddy became. He, became, he, be, he is the representative, he's, he's the emblem of the blues, as it were. Um, I don't know, I, I, I've got kids who are in their early 20s. Well, it's not fair. They, I raised them on Muddy Waters, but I should ask their friends what, what they know about Muddy Waters because um, over time, you know, the, the, the canon changes. I don't know if Muddy carries the same uh, power today. I know that people who listen to Muddy today would feel the same thing that people listen to Muddy then felt because I think it's inherent in the music. It just hits it hits you that way, but his popularity's changed, certainly. But yeah, no, nah, I'm sorry, I'm going long-winded, see? That's why <laughs> editing is great. <laughs> well, Robert, it's been great having you on the show. Great talking about Muddy Waters. Hope to have you back again. I really want to talk about the Stax book and documentary you did, uh, Re Respect, which is just the definitive book and, and documentary on Stax. So I hope we can have you back on the show for that. Let's do it, man. Sounds great. Thanks for having me Awesome. On. Thanks, thanks, Robert. And that's been uh, Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox. And this is going to wrap up our third season. And then we'll be back with the fourth, fourth season with more shows, more fun, more action. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Nate will be taking a break for a few weeks and will return with more music history and analysis in the spring. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com.
Can't Be Satisfied, The Life and Times of Muddy Waters by Robert Gordon is available from Back Bay Books and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.